0: This is the Berg's Eye View podcast. I'm John David Bennett, Dean of Curricular Innovation at Mercesburg Academy. In this episode of our Making a Difference series, I interview Peggy Northup, class of 1972. She's had an extraordinary career in print media, with executive roles at Vogue, Glamour, and Redbook, and as editor-in-chief at Moore Magazine and Reader's Digest. In our conversation, we talk about how she and her team rejuvenated Reader's Digest in 2007. We also talk about her one year at Mercesburg in the first year the academy had girls living on campus. We also discuss her insights about leadership and industries faced with inevitable change. So uh, you took over as editor-in-chief for Reader's Digest in 2007, and in 2009, the 88-year-old magazine won a National Magazine Award for General Excellence Um, for the first time in its history. It's amazing. I'm sure many would have thought that the the Reader's Digest was beyond its heyday by that point. How did you and your team make that happen?
1: Well, it kind of was bah- over its heyday, I have to admit. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think I um, I try to tell the story on my dad just to make fun of him. He told me when I took the job, he said, your grandmother didn't even read that magazine. What's wrong with you? Why would you want to do that? But I love a challenge where people think, oh, you cannot possibly do that. You can't possibly make that better. And so I realized um shortly after I took the job, I did have a bit of a panic about it, I admit. I sir- Shortly after I took the job, I realized I have a size, I have a brand, and I have freedom to do the kind of reinvention that I want to do. And I mean, frankly, i had been hired to do that job. And the CEO who had come in, she and I knew each other from um, from another company where I'd worked. She had been a publisher at Glamour, where I'd also worked. And she said, look, you know, if we can't do it, nobody's going to blame us. They all think that it's dead anyway. (laughs) It's (laughs) kind of wonderful. (laughs) Like, talk about freedom. You know, you get the liberation of nobody thinks it's possible. And so why shouldn't it be you? That fixes it. But part of what I like to do when I take on any job is to think about what is success gonna look like? Um, What do we have? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are the opportunities? What can we own that other people can't own? And we had an enormous audience that knew what we were about. They knew that we were the Reader's Digest version. People didn't use that anymore, but that was what it was always known for. And so I realized, well, you know, we can, we can own that. We can make that fresh and fun and outlining what I thought success was going to look like for my staff, for my team included, and we're going to win a National Magazine Award. Um, which was a very audacious goal because it had never happened. Nobody been in, been nominated. In fact, it was kind of known as a place where if you were an editor who lived in Westchester and couldn't get a job in New York, you could go and work at Reader's Digest. I mean, they, they did really did have, it's a terrible thing to say, but it kind of had that reputation. And I managed to get a bunch of really great people to come and work with me. And we decided we were going to have fun and it really paid off.
0: So what was the trick? What did you do?
1: Well, a lot of it was about setting expectations and saying and and incorporating that sense of bravado into what we did. And really saying, you know, if it's not going to be, you know, it's just us. It's just us and all the things that we bring to it. And why can't this be smart? Why can't this be? Why can't we do what we would do at any other publication, at any other job where we would do the best we could absolutely do? And we would not worry so much about is this within the brand guidelines, or how much over the line can we be? You know, um, it was really an opportunity to pursue our own interests, and and like I say before, laying out that what does what does success look like, and being very crisp about our my communication to the team was very important, and that was probably the first time I had ever done anything like that, where I just said, look, this is. These are the things that, that we can do. These are the things that we can't do. You know, there are always brand guidelines, but within that, you can do a lot. You can do a lot. So it was that communication to the team that I think made, made the most difference and telling people we can figure this out we can we can do this it's like nobody else has done it but that doesn't mean we can't so there is that sense of intention about being brave that i think is is i mean maybe doesn't seem brave but it was there was a certain amount of brav- bravado there that we needed to adopt and, and inculcate into everything that we were
0: doing was there a moment that you recall when you knew that you had done something fresh that there was something exciting that you know, we've accomplished something here
1: well, there wasn't a moment, I mean, certainly getting a National Magazine Award. I mean, that's kind of like getting an Oscar in, in the in the yeah, publishing yeah, industry. So that I really did. I really did know. But for example, I, I think about some of the stuff that we did that was really out, you know, not what Reader's Digest would normally have done. I mean, we had a global circulation and a worldwide circulation. And one of the things we did was to commemorate the, um, the time when the um, Afghan war became the longest running war in American history was we gathered photography from all of the war correspondents who had been covering the war for, at that time, 17 years. And we did like this huge, like many, many, many pages devoted to this really stunning photography And that was a, I mean, it still gives me chills to think about about what we had managed to collect. And it's like having that idea of, we are the curators of this news. We can look forward and backward. We Mm -hmm. can gather Mm -hmm. all of this stuff. That's our role. We are curating an experience for people and we can do that in a really serious way. We did it post Katrina. We sent a photographer there to photograph all of these people who were working on the ground to rebuild New Orleans. And again, it was just one of those, it became this very human story, making that human connection real um, on the pages of this teeny magazine with world-class photography and great writing was, those are the things that I remember and feel like
0: Hmm. that was
1: That was cool. I'm really glad I had an opportunity to
0: do that. It's sort of a full circle thing. When you were at Mercersburg, there wasn't a Rutledge Hall. So Rutledge Hall is is now the extension that goes out behind Kyle. Uh And it's named after Archibald Rutledge, who was a teacher here, twice finished second in Pulitzer Prize voting. Once to Robert Frost and once to Edna St. Vincent Millay. So, you know, not bad. And mm-hmm. then reportedly, although we haven't seen the documentation, he was two votes shy of winning the Nobel Prize for Literature in the year that William Faulkner won it. But anyway, mm-hmm. the, the reason why I mention him is that uh, his major outlet to the broader public. Was via the Reader's Digest. You know, there there is the reputation of that. You know, that that, that the grand publication. But, it, it you know, was,
1: it was the original disruptor. You know, I mean, it was it was it actually put a lot of magazines out of business. Really? If you ever want to read a really interesting history of the Dewitt Wallace family and what he wanted to do, I mean, it was one of the first things I did. In fact, when I came to the to the magazine, is I I read this book called, I think it was called American Dreamers. Mm -hmm. It was about his idea. He wanted, he was a not especially well-educated guy from, from um, the Midwest. It was at a time when everybody was on the move, when suddenly there was a new class of people living in middle-class housing in cities. They needed to educate themselves because they hadn't gone to college. And This was an opera. He would sit around in in hotel rooms while he was being a salesperson and write things that he was learning down on index cards. And he came up with this idea. It's like the regular person needs this kind of information and education. It's like it was the original Wiki, you know, so. Yeah, um, great. And it literally put a lot of mass circulation magazines like Collier's out of business.
0: Yeah, so you come by publishing honestly. Your family was in the newspaper business?
1: Yes, for 116 years. Wow, Uh,
0: where and what?
1: In Washington, Pennsylvania. um, This was a community newspaper uh, with about 30,000 circulation. We, you know, it was a single, single community newspaper, which is very, very hard these days. And ultimately our family decided to sell to a competitor uh, two years ago. Really, we had to sell it to save it. Um, because there, you know, the the media industry has just undergone so much, so much disruption, so much contraction, and you can make a lot of money by making stuff up and getting ads against it. I mean, this is a, <laughs> we all know this, right? It's like the, the business model for fake news is way better than the one for real news. Uh, but yes, it was a wonderful way to grow up, I have to say, because it was. And of course, I didn't. I discounted what I had learned. From sitting around the dinner table talking to my my dad and my brother and and all of us talking about um, the newspaper business but i learned so much about how to stay in touch with your readers how to really be part of a community how to um, you know the inevitable tensions between trying to make a living and trying to do the right thing and trying to report and trying to be a good neighbor um, it was just a fascinating way to grow up. And it really did give me a lot of, of grounding when I finally got into publishing. I could read a business plan. You know, I could read a profit and loss statement because I'd heard all the fights between advertising and editorial at the dinner table already. So it didn't freak me out. It's just like, oh, this is what normally happens. But it was a really great way to grow up.
0: So let's talk about your time at Mercesburg. You came here in a historic year. Yes. You're only here for one year, correct?
1: Yes, that's right. Uh,
0: so yeah, you came in the year that Mercesburg had its first girls in the dormitory.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite story about life on second floor tippets?
1: I'm trying to think of the ones I can tell. Um.
0: <laughs> Feel free.
1: <laughs> um, it was, as you say, it was a historic year. It was the 70s a lot of hippies there. And a lot of the, my girlfriends um, who were with me in Tippett's dorm um, were, uh, you know, we were, some people had already had the boarding school experience. Some people were like me, they hadn't had the boarding school experience. Most of us were not accustomed to, I'm trying to say this in a more politic way. (laughs) Most of us were not accustomed to being told what to do. Let's put it that way. We were accustomed to finding our own way to do what we wanted to do. <laughs> so, um, and we successfully did that at Nursesburg. And I can, <laughs> despite the um, the fact that we were housed on the second floor of a building, uh, we did quickly learn that there was a trellis that you could get down from one person's bedroom down into the, down outside. So there was a fair amount of coming and going. Um, and some of your students will have heard of. The Tibbetts Hall scandal, but basically every single girl that year got had to walk guard. Um, and somewhere I still have the letter that was sent home. I plan to frame someday. I can't wait to show some of my my fellow classmates that I dug this up from the archives.
0: How many hours do you recall of guard?
1: Um, I think it was, um, I think it might've been 20. I oh, mean, wow. some of which could be so, yeah, it was kind of a lot. Um That's I mean, some of which you, you well could do in the that. library, right? I mean, so it wasn't, we didn't have to, we had, but we had to walk a fair, a fair amount, um, as I recall, round and round and round the parking lot.
0: The so Bill Fowle was in his last year. Is that correct? As head of school?
1: I believe it. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Bill
0: Fowle. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Did you know him at all? Did you have
1: you know, not, as, not especially well. I mean, the okay. girls were, it was a very odd time, I have to say, I and mean, yes. it was not, if I had it to do over again, would I have, would I have done it? I mean, I think that we all felt like pioneers and, oh, it's going to be great to be the first, the first girls in mm-hmm. a mostly boys sco- school, but it was like, 400 boys and 30 girls. This is not a recipe for a sense of belonging. And I think it's an interesting thing to think about now, right? And we have this, we're in this period of of reckoning about um, racial equality. And certainly we're focused now, I do a lot of this in my job now, where we're having a lot of conversations about the difference between being represented and actually belonging. And I had that experience at Mercersburg where, yeah, we were there, but we were outliers. And that was um, sometimes quite difficult for for the young women there.
0: Technology has changed every industry, but I can't imagine one that's been that's had to reimagine itself and its future more profoundly than the magazine industry. Uh, but you've done it well, so what should early 21st century leaders know, and, or what traits should they develop with so much necessary change?
1: Well, I've been reading, actually, a friend of mine that I used to work with, and I'm going to be interviewing for my current job next week. Her name is Amy Radin, and she has a great book, a very practical book called The Changemaker's Playbook. So there are techniques that we can always apply to any change that we are dealing with. But I think the biggest thing is just recognizing things don't stay, stay the same ever, That getting it into your head that this is how we do things is a huge danger. You know, do not think to yourself, this is how we do things is going to last for very long. It doesn't. It closes you off from ideas. It closes you off from innovation. And I think the most important thing for people to learn how to do is to listen more actively, to be aware of things that are going on to ask better questions, ask better questions, and then don't expect that the answers are going to fill in the, what you already know, they're going to confirm what you already know. Um, ask questions and be genuinely curious. And when you feel like, oh, I'm in, I'm in weird territory here. This is, this is making me uncomfortable. It's like, stay with that. That's an interesting feeling. That is mm-hmm. going to lead you some to perhaps something that you haven't thought of before. I mean, every, every job now, every industry now, every, every organization now is going through just tremendous change. And you've got to learn to love it. If you don't love it, you're going to be very unhappy.
0: <laughs> so the role you have now, you took, what was it, two weeks before COVID hit?
1: I did. Yes, I so I took over Watermark, which is a women's leadership organization that was founded almost entirely on live events. We had just luckily had our enormous women's conference in Silicon Valley on in early February of last year. And I thought, "Oh, this is going to be great. You know, we're going to do another conference next year. We've got all these all these events lined up. We'll do an innovation conference in June and a leadership conference in October and and I'm going to meet all these fabulous people because I had only moved back to the Cal- to California about six years ago. And so I felt like I, this is great for me. I'm going to meet all these cool women. I love being around women. And all of a sudden, two weeks later, um, the shutdown order came. And I remember at the time, I posted something on Facebook that popped up on my feed showing me at this big conference, wearing my finery on a big stage and a screen. <laughs> and I said, new condo in Sausalito, uh, first day on the new job, 2020, so far, so good, <laughs> like, oops. Um, but you know, we've had to completely reinvent ourselves and go put all of our programming um, online and um, it was a necessary transition for this time but it was also a necessary transition for our future it was something that i come in wanting to do we just you know it just accelerated
0: what are some innovations that that you've developed that you're most proud of i mean you've worked for vogue glamour one magazine of the year with more magazine mm-hmm. uh What tweaks did you make? What profound changes did you make? Um, What did you uh, imagine that you knew that uh, could fill a space that maybe readers didn't know that they wanted filled?
1: Well, and some of a lot of it is gut um, is gut knowledge or, you know, that that sort of thing where you feel like I should be interested in this. But the stuff I'm seeing is not interesting. (laughs) Sometimes that's sometimes that's the root of it. Um, and then it's just listening to that community. you can do a lot when you have a community of people who are willing to talk to you and give you feedback and probably that's the most important thing the through line in 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 my career. it's like and I learned this I really did learn this from like, community newspapers. My dad never remember when you had phone numbers that were listed in the in the phone book, right? It's like my dad's number was always listed. You could find him, you could call him, you could complain about whatever was in the paper this morning. And I remember him getting up from the dinner table and going to take those calls. So I always felt as though part of my job is to, or a big part of my job is to listen to the community that I am trying to serve. And so It's way less about me and way more about them. So at More Magazine in particular, I mean, that was a great job because it was all these women over 40. I was the same age and we were, it was kind of like, it's a little bit like being a teenager again. You know, you turn 40, your kids are starting to grow up and be out of the house. You're at the peak of your career. You have tons and tons of energy and you just think, well, why, this is, this doesn't, this is what, not what people told me 40 was going to be like at all, but I don't see it reflected in the media. And so it was fairly easy to just bring the readers into that and make sure that they were literally in our pages and in our digital spaces and in our events, showcasing those readers. And I'm trying to do the same thing, frankly, with watermark um, where we are um, creating events where people don't get talked to, but, where they can talk to one another because that sense of community can power, um, can power a lot of innovation.
0: That was Peggy Northrup, class of 1971. Thank you to Jim Bradley and Tim Krauts for help producing this podcast. And special thanks to Brian Morgan, class of 07, and Maddie Norris, class of 21, for writing and recording the music. If you know a Mercesburg graduate who's making a difference and you'd like to nominate them for an appearance on the Berg's Eye View podcast, send an email to alumni at mercersburg.edu. Thank you for listening.